If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6. This book can be found pretty much in the very middle of the New Testament. Written by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the church at Ephesus. And we want to read chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, with the words of that last song fresh in our minds, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and that he would move in our midst, showing us Christ, showing us your word. And may you mold and form and shape us according to the Bible as we consider it together this morning. Open up your word to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today, at long last, we conclude our series in the book of Ephesians. We actually began this series uh, 364 days ago, so a year ago uh, tomorrow. 33 sermons total, so I guess we took a number of breaks along the way. Uh, This congregation was maybe a quarter of the size or maybe a third of the size then uh, that it is now, and so a lot has changed, but certainly uh, the Word of God has remained the same. Hopefully our knowledge of it and our devotion to it uh, has grown over the course of this series in the book of Ephesians. Well, as we conclude our study of the epistle to the Ephesians this morning, I'd like to begin this final sermon by asking a question. What is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? What do we know about his plans and about his purposes? That seems like a reasonable question someone might ask you. Perhaps a child in Sunday school. Perhaps an unbeliever. What, what is the Christian God doing in the world? What are his purposes and plans for everything that we see going on and for our lives and for the course of human history? Well, I think when asked that question, it's a healthy thing, it's a good thing to recognize up front uh, that there are many things we don't understand about what God is doing in the world. There's much that we don't know. Uh, There's much about the God of the Bible that he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures, in the 66 books that we have. Uh, Though he has revealed himself to us, there's much we don't know about God's purposes and plans in the world. In fact, God himself says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is, in essence, saying there are things about my ways, things about my purposes that you simply cannot understand. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are beyond your thoughts. There's things about the ways and purposes and plans of God that we simply do not comprehend. Again, God says, questioning Job in Job 11, verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? 
Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Interesting question there. It is ordinarily the discipline of systematic theology to find language that specifically and accurately defines the Almighty. And yet God says, I trump some of those definitions. You cannot actually accurately trace out the limit of the Almighty. You can try. Just when we think we might comprehend God himself, he eludes our grasp. His ways and thoughts are beyond us. Psalm 8, 3-4, perhaps a more well-known text. Psalmist writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You get the sense that the psalmist contemplates the grandeur of the universe, and he's thinking, you know, we're just a little slice of this pie. What is man that you even think about him? I, I look upon this vast expanse and what your hand has done. Why do you even think about we lowly men and women? The sense that God is great and in some sense beyond us. Then Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. This is a profound statement. He has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Cannot find out what God has done. All the revelation we have in Scripture, and yet there are things about God we cannot grasp, we cannot understand. We can search it out, and yet we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Now you may say to me, well, what about when we get to the New Testament? I mean, isn't that kind of the point? The Bible's revelation is certainly progressive. We acknowledge that. We have more clarity this side of the cross than our Old Testament brothers and sisters had. Uh, and yet, even in the New Testament, you get statements like this, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. His ways are past finding out, other translations say. And of course, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know only in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Even this side of the cross, with all we know about God's redemptive purposes in Christ, there's still things we cannot understand about God. His ways are past finding out. We still see only in a mirror, but dimly. Okay, so, so receive those texts, and, and that opening point is one massive preface and qualification to what I'm about to say. In the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul is uh, determined, he's purposed to acquaint us with the purposes and plans of God insofar as they relate to redemption and reconciliation in Christ and to his redemptive historical plan for the church being a united body of Jew and Gentile. That really is the theme of the book of Ephesians. I want to acquaint you with what God is doing in the world. I'm not going to tell you everything you might want to know about why this historical event happened when it did and why this king is on the throne at this time and what that particular thing in your life meant, but I do want you to know some things about God's redemptive purposes in Christ. That's the whole purpose of the book of Ephesians. And we see this very clearly in what we've taken to be sort of the thesis statement of the book. In Ephesians chapter 1, I encourage you to turn there, just a few pages over from chapter 6. The purpose statement of the book, we've argued, is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. It's in those verses that Paul writes, He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, 
as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, that is in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. What do we see in this text? God is apparently revealing something. Starts off first time. He is made known, or he is revealed, or he is made manifest. God is revealing something to these Ephesian Christians, and it's called the mystery of his will, and it's called his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, what is it? This mystery, this purpose, this plan, what is it, Paul? It is to unite, or to bring together, to sum up, to reconcile all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. Christ is the focal point of redemptive history. He's the center of the gospel message. He's the center of God's redemptive purposes. Things only matter insofar as they relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything derives its meaning relative to the Lord Jesus. And so, working from this verse in conjunction with the rest of the book, we have adopted as sort of the purpose statement of the book of Ephesians for our study over these months now, uh, the following statement. This is the purpose of the book of Ephesians. Uh, to reveal to us that God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work. That's things in heaven, things on earth, encompasses the whole universe. God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. This is, in essence, God's plan for the fullness of time. This is his purpose. This is the mystery of his will now revealed to the church. Now, all I want to do this morning as we come to these final verses in chapter 6 is to survey the entire book uh, and pick up some of the major uh, steps in the unfolding of this plan of redemption, this plan of uniting all things in Christ and perfecting this work of redemption begun in him. I just wanted to go chapter by chapter and pick up on some of the major movements in this plot, in this plan, as it unfolds in the book of Ephesians. So five points this morning, five points to this plan that Paul wants to acquaint us with in the book of Ephesians. And the first is this. We see in chapter one a plan for sovereign election. A plan for sovereign election. So you want to have your Bibles open as we go through this survey together. We're going to start in chapter one. We see... In Ephesians chapter 1, a plan for sovereign election. This great work, this cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ comprehends God's plan of election conceived, apparently, in eternity past. Look with me at Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, presumably before the world was created, we were chosen in Christ, in him, elected in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So up front, we should see in the unfolding of this great plan of reconciliation in Christ, uniting all things in Christ, it begins with this plan for sovereign election conceived in eternity past. Now, we've remarked a number of times on the background of the book of Ephesians. That's found largely in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. That's where we get the history of the planting of the church at Ephesus. And it's interesting to see how that church was founded. Apparently, the very first converts in that church were presumably Jews. 
uh, who were converted through the synagogue ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's preaching in the synagogues, as was his pattern in many places, to start there. And uh, after a while, he, he wins some converts, some disciples are made, uh, but, but after a, a time, apparently the Jews there become hard-hearted. And so we read in chapter 19, he takes the disciples from the synagogue, the Jews there, and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus, which is a, a pagan venue. And uh, he's there for two years preaching the gospel, and uh, it's probably so, at least from what we have in the New Testament, that the Hall of Tyrannus was the greatest context, the greatest platform for Paul's ministry uh, in his entire life, his entire ministry. Profoundly fruitful in his preaching of the Word of God and the gospel in the Hall of Tyrannus. In fact, so fruitful we read that literally all of Asia hears the Word of the Lord, and many are converted. So massive numbers of pagans and Gentiles are brought to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and brought to believe the gospel. Tons of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting what we learn about the backgrounds of some of these Gentile believers. I have a minority of Jews, but now a majority of Gentiles. As we read through Acts 19 and 20, we learn that a number of them were caught up in all sorts of immoral practices. We can even see this in the book of Ephesians. Paul says, don't walk like you used to do in the futility of your minds, right? They were caught up in all sorts of immorality. A number of them were caught up in the occult, Apparently, that was quite prevalent in the Ephesian region. People caught up in black magic and uh, mystical practices and, and, and pagan rituals and things like that, such that when uh, many of these individuals come to faith in Jesus Christ, we read they have a mass bonfire to symbolize their repentance. They take all these books of magic, and they bring them together, and they burn them. And the total value of them, we read in Acts 19, is 50,000 pieces of silver. Massive amount of money in those days. So people coming from this sort of occult background. And then as we read on, uh, we, we can conclude that a number of the Ephesians were caught up in idol worship, uh, perhaps of the goddess Artemis. We know this because apparently this man named Demetrius, who was one of the leading idol manufacturers in the region, he calls sort of a business summit. He gathers all the idol makers in the community because stocks are plumbed. The local idol economy is fractured. And he says, look, our sales are down. Apparently, this gospel has gone forward, this, this message of Christianity, and people are believing it, and they're not buying idols anymore. Like, we've got to do something about this. That sounds like revival to me. Like, like um, imagine if, if, if all of a sudden uh, uh, returns in the pornographic industry were just slashed because the gospel had gone forward in power and people had believed and turned away from wicked practices such as that. Well, that's what happens in Ephesus. People aren't buying idols anymore. And so there's a riot over all of this and that's eventually calmed down. But, but through that, we learn that apparently those who were saved in the Ephesian context caught up in, in immorality, uh, black magic and the occult, and apparently were idol worshipers as well. And now you're in the church. You've never heard of Jesus Christ prior to the coming of the Apostle Paul. You come to believe, and now you're in this body of Jew and Gentile, and uh, uh, you're a church together. And some seven or eight years later, we think, they received this letter from the Apostle Paul from prison. That's our uh, book in our Bibles, Letter to the Ephesians. And you, you receive this book. Remember, think of what all is in their mind about their backgrounds, the things God had called them out of. They've come to embrace the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you learn the opening verses of this letter, that this was all according to plan. This is all according to the plan of God. That the gospel would come to Ephesus. That you would believe it. And that you would become part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And moreover, before you were even born, even before the world began, God had thoughts towards you. 
And all of his thoughts toward you were love. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. And maybe there were some in the Ephesian context who still had not yet wrapped their minds around the doctrine of adoption. I'm a, I'm a son and daughter of the living God. And God has unilaterally acted to make it so. And he's moved toward me, initiated toward me in love, such that I've been chosen and predestined to adoption. Imagine how that would have enlarged their view of God and his grace. And before time began, he acted in love. He initiated this plan of redemption to save individuals from the Ephesian region. And for the life of me, I, I can't imagine why people disparage the doctrine of predestination. Isn't it a precious doctrine to the believer that, that before time began, before the foundations of the world were laid, before you were born, God thought about you. His thoughts towards you were love. And he took the initiative in time, again, before you were born, to send his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. And then in time, he came to you and brought you from death to life and from darkness to light. Well, that's what the Ephesians are told here in these first few verses. There's this plan for election, and they are part of it. It's not a plan for election unto itself just so that you could be perfectly happy and, and live your best life now. We're given some reasons in Ephesians chapter 1 why God initiated this plan. We read first of all in verse 4 that God wants people to be holy. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's one of the reasons this sovereign plan of election began, that God would have a holy people. Also, we see that Christ would get glory. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did all of this take place? Why was his plan of redemption conceived? Apparently, so that Jesus would get all the glory. That's the purpose of God in election. Well, before we move on to the second step in this plan, what are some lessons we should learn here? Some lessons we've even considered in previous sermons. Well, first of all, we should recognize all the spiritual blessings that we have, redemption, adoption of sons and daughters, the forgiveness of sins, the seal of the Holy Spirit, all of that only comes to us through our union with Christ. We have that in him. Union, union with Christ is, is, is such a beautiful doctrine to me. All that I have is Christ's. My sin, my shame, the just punishment due to my sins, that all becomes his, and he bears it on the cross. And then all that he has is mine. All those benefits come to me. His righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, redemption by his blood, that all becomes ours through our union with him. Every spiritual blessing we only have in connection with Christ. We should also see in chapter 1 that salvation is the result of the unilateral activity of God. Salvation from beginning to end is all a work of God. I mean, just observe how unilateral this is. Before you were even born, before the foundations of the world, this plan was initiated. It's all part of the activity of God, and that should encourage us because it means that my eternal security and your eternal security is ultimately founded upon the unshakable sovereign will of God. You ever feel so fickle and so fleeting. There's a song we sing here called Come Now Fount. has the line, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Are you familiar with that? That notion in your own heart? Well, be encouraged, brother or sister. The, the assurance that you will stand on that great and final day and be found in Christ is ultimately based on the unshakable will of the God who does not change, who is immutable, 
and you will be enabled to stand on that last day through the sovereign will of God. Thirdly, in chapter one, we should see that the glory of God is the chief end of everything. Now, this great plan of redemption is ultimately to the praise of his glorious grace. The majesty of God in Christ, the glory of God in Christ is the center of the Bible and it's the center of the whole universe. And your chief end, my chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And even our salvation is to the glory of God. All right, now secondly, second part of this plan of reconciliation in Christ. First, we've seen that it includes a plan for sovereign election. Now secondly, a plan for personal salvation. A plan for personal salvation, like in time, present tense. There was God's plan of election in eternity past, then personal salvation in the present that comes to us. Paul reminds the Ephesians in chapter two now that they were once dead in sin, they were living in immorality, and they were actually under the dominion of Satan. Verses one through three of chapter two acquaint us with that truth. And then verse four, those wonderful words, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. God came to us in time and brought us from death to life, brought us from darkness to light. Personal salvation came to us in a moment when we first believed upon him. And it's so important that you see here that this did not happen when we began to get our act together or when, you know, a subtle change is beginning to take place. We were showing signs of life, and that's when God made us alive together with Christ. No, it says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world in chapter 1. Then it says in chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. Again, you see that unilateral work of God that he's begun. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All part of the unilateral activity of God. And then as we read on, we get to Ephesians 2.8, a very well-known verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul wants to make sure these Ephesians understand your salvation is all a work of grace. Your works were not allowed to enter into the equation. That's why he sort of repeats himself several times. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Don't get any wrong ideas about your salvation. It is all upon the basis of the unmerited grace of God. Free grace, full pardon for everyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus. But lest the Ephesians deprecate good works, Paul is careful to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, that we should walk in them. Very important to see the prepositions there. We're not saved of works. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works or by works, but we are saved for works. So, so works are never allowed to become the root of salvation, but they're always the fruit. All those who are made alive together with Christ and have a renewed nature in him, We'll live a life of good works, not a life of perfection, not a life of sinlessness, but we would expect that very thing, that workmanship created in Christ, the word there is poema, we've talked about that, that masterpiece, that craft created in Christ Jesus is for good works that we should walk in them. And therefore, Paul says, 
Look, make no mistake, your salvation is all of grace. You've started by grace, you'll end by grace. And yet, all those who are created new in Christ will walk in good works to the glory and honor of God. Well, what are some lessons we need to see here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10? Well, first of all, we should be encouraged. No one is outside of God's reach. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Not people that have begun to make steps toward him. He saves those who were still dead in their trespasses and sins. Do you know people in your life, you're just like, man, I talk to them about the gospel. I share my faith with them. It's like I'm talking to a dead person. I'm talking to a brick wall. It just bounces right off them. I see no signs of life and vitality at all. Well, be encouraged. God saves people like that. People who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And maybe you can remember even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And how God sovereignly worked to bring you to life in Jesus Christ. No one is outside of God's reach. And we should be encouraged to pray for those in our lives who we perceive to be dead to God. Dead in trespasses and sins. Under the dominion of Satan walking in immorality. A second lesson we should see here in these verses is of course, as I've already said, that salvation is all of grace. Brother, sister, don't get any cute ideas at all. It's appropriate to grow in holiness. We ought to walk in good works. We've talked a lot about that over the last few months. And yet, don't ever think that your standing with God, your merit before him, is based upon your performance or your ability to perform good works. We plead grace at our conversion, and we will plead grace at the bar of Christ on that great and final day. But then thirdly recognize that salvation, true salvation, the sort of death to life salvation Paul's talking about, it inevitably leads to good works. Such that if you've been in the way for 10 years, 20 years, and you see no sign of life, you see no sign of good works, uh, you ought to be suspicious. You ought to be skeptical of your own faith because apparently true conversion, true faith in Jesus Christ, this salvation by grace that raises us with the Lord Jesus Christ, it will inevitably result in good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, thirdly now, we've seen a plan for sovereign election. We've seen this plan for personal salvation. Now thirdly, a plan for the church. As this plan of redemption unfolds, Paul acquaints us with God's plan for the church. And this begins in chapter 2, verse 11, really runs... Definitely through chapter 3, more or less to middle of chapter 4 as well, verse 16. There's a plan for the church. This work of reconciliation in Christ comprehends the formation of a new community, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile reconciled to one another in one united body. I want you to see how this work unfolds in Paul's language. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember the majority of the church, we believe were Gentiles, Jewish minority. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me pause there. Uh, hopefully you remember when we looked at this text together, those of you who were there at that time, we talked about how uh, the Gentiles were excluded from the redemptive purposes of God in the Old Testament. If we ask the question, who, who were God's people in the Old Testament? Well, we wouldn't necessarily say the church or all those who believed the gospel. We'd say it was God's people, Israel. 
God's people were identified as an ethnic people group. Okay? And, the, and, and the Gentiles were excluded from that. If you wanted to become a follower of God, a, a worshiper of God, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to perform the rituals and practices that we see in the Old Testament. And Paul is reminding those Gentiles, hey, you were outside of the redemptive purposes of God. You were without hope and without God in the world. All those covenants in the Old Testament, the covenant made with Moses and with Abraham and with David, you were strangers to those covenants. You had no hope of salvation. And he's going to say, now all of that has changed in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Jew and Gentile have been made one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What I want you to see here is that through Christ's cross work, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his own blood, he was making, he was forming a new community, the church. And he was making Jew and Gentile one. And he was breaking down the dividing wall that separated the Gentiles from the redemptive purposes of God. In Jesus Christ, those who were far off have now been brought near. God has formed a new community, no longer identified with the ethnic people Israel. But it is the church made up of all those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see how the material earlier on in chapter 2 prepares us for this? If salvation is all of grace and not a result of works, well, then all those saved on the basis of grace are part of that new community. As one preacher has said, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no VIPs in the church. There are no second class citizens in the church. Jew and Gentile are one. We've talked about this in the past that uh, it's, it's hard for us to understand at this point in history, but the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile was more aggravated than any two groups you could think of today. You know, the hostility, the alienation. Jews and Gentiles didn't mix, didn't hang out together. You wouldn't see them eating together in restaurants with one another. Jews and Gentiles did not like each other, but in the church, they're one in Christ. And through what Jesus has done, they're made one. When we think of what Jesus has done on the cross, we often think of personal salvation. He paid the penalty for my sins. But we need to enlarge our view of what actually was taking place at the cross. Certainly no less than the forgiveness of our sins and the satisfaction of the wrath of God, but also what was taking place there is that God was forming a new people. And he was killing in his body hostility and alienation that would exist in his church. So if Jew and Gentile can get along, brothers and sisters, anyone can get along through Jesus Christ. Meaningful unity can be achieved through the Lord Jesus. Alienation and hostility and division and strife and rivalry, it's kicked out of the camp. Therefore, in Christ's church, unity should prevail. Unity should dwell. God's people are meant to be one. Well, as we read on in chapter 3, Paul shares more about this, how it was a unique stewardship given to, to unfold this mystery that now in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are brought in, that they're made one in Jesus Christ. 
And it's interesting as this text unfolds, I'll just have you, we'll, we'll jump in at verse 7 of chapter 3. I want to get a sense of how significant this unity principle is in the church. Chapter 3, verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the world? To non-believers? Well, certainly at least to them. But he says more than that, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about the emperor. He's not talking about the president or the prime minister. He's talking about rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The same language is used in chapter 1. It's used again in chapter 6. He's referring to like angels and demons and Satan himself. The heavenly places is not heaven because he goes on to say in chapter 6, the heavenly places is where our spiritual warfare takes place. It's the spirit realm. And in that place, angels and demons and Satan himself are looking upon the scene, looking upon the church. And what we learn in Ephesians 3 is that in the church, when Jew and Gentile and disparate groups live as one in one reconciled body, it's meant to be this cosmic display of the manifold wisdom of God. There's so much more going on here, brothers and sisters, even in these moments than we realize. There are spiritual forces, rulers and authorities in heavenly places looking down upon the scene. And the idea is that when Jew and Gentile dwell together in unity, when rich and poor and black and white and slave and free, when disparate groups who are formerly hostile to one another dwell in unity in the church, it's this glorious cosmic vindication of the manifold wisdom of God. Now that's something to get excited about. Satan looks at the church. And when the church dwells in unity as one united body, it's like God has him by the scruff of the neck and is holding his nose in it. Look at this display of my manifold wisdom. Look at the, where else do Jew and Gentile dwell as one? But in the church. And this has happened by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where else do young and old and rich and poor live in unity together and even share their possessions together? It's in the church. And Satan just has to watch this great display as God is vindicated before the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Well, what are some lessons for us from chapter 2 and chapter 3 on the church? First of all, we should see that community in the Christian life is not optional. Community in the Christian life is not optional. Now, where am I getting that? Well, apparently one of the very things Christ was doing on the cross was taking a plural group of people and making them one. When you are saved through Jesus Christ, you're not just saved unto yourself. You're introduced in a new community, the church. That's meant to be this great cosmic display of the manifold wisdom of God. It's a lot bigger than a membership class. You are inaugurated, you are introduced into God's new people, the church. And one of the things Christ was doing on the cross was making his people one. He intends for you to be in a group of people who are one purely through the blood of Jesus Christ. And by the way, people you wouldn't necessarily normally hang out with. People older than you, 
younger than you, people who make more money than you, less money than you, people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds, disparate groups, people that are unlike each other, they come together in Christ through his grace. Now, every now and again, you'll hear a preacher say something like, you know, you really need community in your life. You really need the church. And we might hear that, and we may think, okay, he's looked out upon the world and upon the church, and he's made this diagnosis that generally we're social beings and people need one another, and so it would be wise to be involved in a community of people, because community's a good thing, right? Okay, I want to say something a lot stronger than that. This is not just a preacher's diagnosis about what makes for good social and mental health, okay? Community in the Christian life, being part of a plural group of people who are unlike you in one united body, is demanded by the blood of Christ. Demanded by the blood of Christ. He sweat drops of blood for you, and he sweat drops of blood for your brothers and sisters in the church. And apparently, part of what he was doing on the cross was to make this new community, the church, and to make them one by his blood in his flesh. That's what that language means. As he was suffering on the cross, he was making this group one in Jesus Christ. That's why I say it's demanded by the blood of Christ. And so brothers and sisters, give your lives to the church. Give your lives to the community of other Christians. Open yourselves up to relationships in the church. And I encourage you, God helping us, we hope that increasingly reflected in our church body, we'll see diversity, uh, not just ethnically, but also in terms of background, in terms of age. Don't just gravitate to Christian settings with people who are in the same phase of life as you. You hear this all the time. I want to be in a small group where there are lots of young couples. Or I want to be in a small group where there are lots of older couples. I want to be in a Sunday school class with lots of young parents. That's great. There are all sorts of social clubs in the world that organize those sorts of things, okay? But the church is so much grander and greater than that. I mean, is it, is it such a mysterious and unheard of thing that a 25-year-old man could be best friends with a 65-year-old man? Or a 30-year-old woman and a 50-year-old woman? Someone who's black, someone who's white, someone who's young, someone who's old, someone who earns a couple million dollars a year, and someone who's barely skating by on 30 grand a year. Now, why is that so unheard of? We think in such natural terms all the time. But the supernatural work of God, where he saves people by his grace, levels the playing field. We're one in Christ. And if you love my Jesus, I love you. If you belong to him, and I belong to him, we belong to one another. That's the vision that Paul is conveying. If Jew and Gentile can do this, brothers and sisters, anyone can be one in Christ. Community in the Christian life is not optional. Secondly, there is no place for division in the church. No place for division. In light of what we've read in chapter 2, we've seen in chapter 3, in light of Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, which Ben considered this morning in the equip class, how important do you think oneness and unity is to the Lord Jesus? If you are working for unity, for love, for as Ephesians 4.3 says, that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, when you find yourself working for that, my brother, my sister, you are very near to the heart of Christ. He wants his people to be one. It's when you're bearing with your brother and sister in love and when you're uh, 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 acting with that sort of love that covers a multitude of sins and fighting for the unity of Christ's body, you are close to the heart of Christ. Conversely, when you are sowing seeds of discord, when you nurse bitter grudges and bitterness toward a brother or sister and allow yourself to be divided from your brothers and sisters in the church, you are quite far from the heart of the Lord Jesus. 
quite far from his purposes. He, he banished alienation and hostility and strife and division. He does not want those things in his body of the church. So brothers and sisters, let's labor for unity. No place for division in Christ's church. Let's labor for love. Let's seek to preserve that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then a third lesson, meaningful unity can only be achieved through Christ. Meaningful unity can only be achieved through Jesus Christ. I'm a Clemson fan, graduated from Clemson University. I gather with other Clemson graduates to cheer on the Tigers. That unity is based on the fact that we all paid dollars to that. It's not the most meaningful unity in the world. I mean, it makes me happy. I feel a sense of camaraderie, and I cheer, and I shout, and it's fun. But meaningful unity that takes people, disparate groups who, in other contexts, would never really spend time with one another, to actually live life alongside one another and to bear one another's burdens and to, to help one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, like for decades, that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaningful unity can only be achieved through him. Well, much of my time is gone. I have to move more quickly here on these final two points. As the book unfolds, we see, beginning in chapter 4, fourthly, a plan for holiness. A plan for holiness. This starts with the first words of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you read Ephesians 1 through 3 in the original language, you'd see that there's not a single imperative verb in the first three chapters. That means not like a, a single command about how we're supposed to live. It's described in the indicative but no, it's all theological material in chapters 1 through 3. But with chapter 4, verse 1, we now get into lots of imperatives, lots of commands. Again, I just encourage you, don't get confused by this. Not saved of works, saved for works. And so Paul says, this great and glorious calling you've been given in Jesus Christ, now walk in a manner worthy of it. Certain things you ought to do, certain things you ought to characterize your life as a Christian person. Those who formerly lived in immorality and in the occult and in idol worship, now they're inaugurated into a new community in the church where they are to walk in godliness and holiness and righteousness. Ephesians 4 verse 17 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 22, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And as we read in the next seven or eight verses, what does he say to them? There's, there's things they need to know about their speech and about lying and about anger and about bitterness and about uh, stealing and things like that. There's a new moral order in the Christian life. When you're called to Christ, you're called to walk alongside him in newness of life. You're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, this really goes on all the way through chapter 5 and into chapter 6. We see this as implications for how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, how children and parents are to relate to one another, how slaves and masters are to relate to one another. It's quite extensive, the moral imperative material in the book of Ephesians. Well, what should we learn from that? Two lessons. First of all, God's people should be passionately committed to holiness. Now, there's something you don't hear very often. God's people should be passionately committed to holiness. God saved us, chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
God wants a holy people. And those of us who love a holy God should seek to be holy as God is holy. We should love and cherish holiness. By God's help and God's grace, we should devote ourselves to growth and holiness. Secondly, holiness has personal and corporate implications. Personal piety before the Lord, corporate righteousness in the gathering of God's people. This goes back to community, uh, uh, not being optional. Most of the commands were given in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, we cannot keep outside of community. How can you bear with one another in love if there's no one another? There's corporate implications to these commands, and it's another urgent call to corporate holiness. And then fifthly and finally, we have a plan for battle. A plan for battle. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks. This work of reconciliation in Christ comprehends the drafting of believers into cosmic spiritual warfare in which believers wage war alongside Christ against satanic powers and evil forces in the spiritual realm. And it's here that we're told to take the strength of God and the armor of God and to use it in combat against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We saw that There's great need in our day to be more spiritually minded, to recognize that day in, day out, we are at war with spiritual forces, not against flesh and blood, not against political parties or leaders, not against men and women we meet in the marketplace. Our enemy is Satan and his minions who war against the human soul. We learned last time from our brother Zach so helpfully that prayer is so indispensable to this. We put on the armor of God and we pray without ceasing in the spirit that God would aid us and that God would help us. Well, now we need to conclude. We come to these last four verses of chapter 6. Look at them again with me, please. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is Paul's parting prayer. The focus is God's love for us and our love for Christ Jesus. He prays for the Ephesians, grace, peace, and love being multiplied to them. Now knowing what you know of the book of Ephesians, can you hear material from earlier chapters. That grace would be unto you. That grace by which we're saved, chapter 2, verse 8. That peace would be to you. That peace which only Christ makes in his body on the tree from chapter 2. And that love with which God first predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. That love that he showed us in Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. He says, may these things be multiplied to you. And who's the audience? To all those who love Christ Jesus with a love incorruptible. And this is the central issue now coming to the end of the book. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? This great plan of salvation, this great work of reconciliation in Christ, all the grace, the peace, the love that comes through salvation, that comes to all those who love the Lord Jesus. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever embraced him in repentance and faith? If you have, all of these blessings are yours. I just encourage you Christians, read again chapter one 
of all those spiritual blessings we have in Christ. They're yours. If you've come to love the Lord Jesus Christ and embraced him as a savior and looked upon him in faith, all of those benefits are yours. And I urge you, those of you who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, none of those things are yours. Grace, peace, and love, you will experience none of that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But in him, you could have it all. The forgiveness of your sins, grace forever, paradise with God in his presence for all eternity, that all becomes yours if you would come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And listen, this is the plan of God. He is doing a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ Jesus. And listen, I only matter, and you only matter, and I only have significance, and you only have significance relative to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the focal point of human history. He's the focal point of the Bible. He's the focal point of this great plan that God is bringing about in the world. Where do you fit in that plan? On that last day, will you be one of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and have redemption in him? Or will you be forever lost? outside of his grace, outside of his peace, outside of his love. Well, I charge you, my friend, you could have all of those things in Jesus Christ. And I offer them to you now on the basis of God's word as a savior for sinners. Come and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and free grace and full pardon will be yours. And love everlasting and peace, rest for your weary soul. Come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. Let's pray together.